Welcome to Sportsman of Colorado, Colorado's premier outdoor radio show heard every Saturday afternoon on KLZ 560 with insights on hunting, fishing, archery, guns, and ammo from Colorado's top outfitters featuring the industry's leading experts on how to enhance your experience in the great outdoors. Now, here's your host, Scott Watley. Welcome to Sportsman Colorado. Thank you so much for joining us. We are glad you're with us. Just a reminder now, if you miss our live show on Saturdays from 1 to 2, you can catch us twice on Sundays, and that's from 8 to 9 a.m. or once again from 7 to 8 p.m. right here on KLZ 560. And we're glad to kick things off with our good friend Mike Slinkert from Hex, and you've heard a few interviews with Mike, and we're going to be doing several more of these. So, Mike, thanks for being with us today on Sportsman Colorado. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. I appreciate always being on. Absolutely. Well, man, it's that time of year. Man, we're all uh, just thrilled to be out in the woods, I think, with everything going on in politics and COVID and all that. It's just great to be out, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a lot more relaxing in the woods than it is uh, anywhere <laughs> around uh, media or anything like that right now, no doubt. Boy, no kidding. Well, you know, we always want to be the one to think of that cool idea or that cool product when we see a product like hex and uh just think man i wish i could have thought of that so kind of just uh go back and reflect a little bit on you know how this product even came about well you know um i, I always tell people it was kind of a grand accident in a way but uh, <laughs> um so you know i grew up in very rural eastern oregon um you know cattle ranching was my my grandfather my uncle had cattle ranchers so you know, was able to be around animals my whole life. Um, and, and also, uh, was fortunate enough to grow up in a hunting family, uh, particularly a bow hunting family. So getting close to all kinds of animals has always been, uh, you know, it's always been a part of my life. And, you know, it came to be kind of known by pretty much everyone that, you know, when you get close to an animal, especially a big game animal, and especially if he has any age on him, it's not very long, and even if all the conditions are right, you're going to watch mm-hmm. that body language change, and, and they're going to get more nervous, and, you know, whether they run off or just move away, they, they know something's there. Sure. And, uh, you know, my grandpa, he was a big horse guy. He always used to tell me, you know, the horse knows what you're thinking, whether you know it or not, <laughs> and uh, you know, kind of a famous quote of his. And um, so, you know, it's I've all, we've always known that there was something else there. It's not just the the five senses that we that we recognize that all animals have, but actually, you know, a lot of people call this sixth sense, and it truly is. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, trying to figure this thing out, and you know, being a bow hunter and always trying to get closer and having more uh, more interaction, um, you know, we kind of went down the rabbit hole of what you know what is causing this. You know, we've all seen it. And, you know, through a bunch of originally just online research, um, we started looking at what animals can sense from the electromagnetic field standpoint, uh, particularly as it, uh, you know, as it has to do with how animals navigate. And, you know, if you go down that, you, you know, you, there's a lot known about how they are, the internal compass works, how animals can pick up the extreme low frequency field right. of, the, of the earth for navigation. Birds actually are proven to see it, and there are actually some research now coming out that, that canines actually see it visually as well. But um, anyway, um, we just ask ourselves, okay, so what if we block the field that's coming out of our body? All living beings create this extreme low frequency uh, electromagnetic field, and it's very similar to the field of the Earth. That was our connection point. And so, 
you know, we started playing around with how you block it. And actually, to be honest with you, how to block it was the easiest thing. We basically went back to the what's called the Faraday cage principle, kind mm-hmm. of the same uh, principle that you see in the door of your microwave, that little grid that's size and shape to block the electrical field that's coming out of the microwave. We basically integrated uh, a, a conductive uh, carbon yarn in a specific grid pattern, just like your microwave uh, oven grid is, and it actually blocks the fields that are coming out of our body. So, hmm. um, I kind of a long and drawn out, but that's no, really yeah. how we how we came about. Wow! And you know, you do a great job explaining the, this on your website, by the way, which is uh, you can go to hex h e c s l l c dot com, and uh, we'll give you a promo code here in a little bit, uh, save you a little money uh, if you order through our show. But um, when you look at just the fabric itself, how did you come up with the type of, you know, we'll take your initial suit, kind of the mesh thing. How did you come up with just knowing what fabric to use? Because it's really comfortable, too. Yeah, well, the the, the fabric, you know, that we picked was, I mean, a lot of our stuff, our basic suit is just a polyester base, pretty lightweight fabric. But it's uh, the grid is, is, the important thing about the grid is uh, that it is highly electrically conductive carbon yarn. And we could use any electrically conductive material. Originally, the original prototypes actually used stainless steel, which you can imagine how comfortable that was. But carbon is very flexible. It's also extremely electrically conductive, and it's actually an interlocking grid. So um, it's a pretty technical fabric in that they actually weave this grid into a particular size grid pattern, and it's all interlocking while they're making the fabric. So it's all all. Uh, you know, made at the same time. But uh, so it's a pretty technical fabric. There's not a lot of places that can do it. But um, yeah, that's that's how it is. And, and so what we did is we just uh, established the wavelength of the, you know, or the height of the energy wave that we were trying to trying to capture. And that's why the grid is sized and shaped like it is. All right. If you're just joining us, Mike Slinker is with us. He's the president of HEX. And uh, we are glad to have Mike with us. Um, so when you uh, your product line, um, boy, like I say, you came out with your original suit there, but now you guys have kind of expanded it and even gotten into some aquatic uh, gear. So kind of walk us through your lineup now. Yeah, so, um, you know, in, in the hunting gear, we have our our basic suit, um, which is very lightweight. Um, it's a, Actually, I should back up. We're now calling it our system because there are okay. going to be some uh, some new things coming out. So the important thing about a system is that you cover your your, your, your the top, the pant, and the head cover. Yep. Those are the three basic pieces of a system. Um, our, our basic one is, like I said, that very lightweight mesh. Um, we actually just came out with a brand-new camo pattern, which uh, everybody seems to be pretty excited about. Um, and we've got uh, a few sizes in stock now in that, and uh, we'll be in about a week or so. We'll be fully stocked in our hex anywhere pattern. That's what we call it because it actually blends in pretty much anywhere. Okay. And then we also have a hex style. That's what we're calling our camel hex style. Is a, a hex style green, and that'll be coming uh, here within before the end of the month. We'll be fully stocked in that as well. So you'll see that throughout our entire lineup coming up. Um, also, we have our base layer system, which is also a shirt, a pant, and, and a lightweight uh, head cover. Um, and uh, very soon, you'll be seeing that in both hex style camo patterns as well. So that's hmm. a little sneak peek of what's coming out okay. uh, here very, very shortly. But um, our base layer is, uh, you know, it's a, 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 a 
tight-fitting underlayer-type garment, um, sort of akin to an Under Armour base layer, I guess. Right. And it uh, it has a little thermal, but also looks moisture and does everything a great base layer does, too, and has hex technology. So it's right. uh, really, really popular. Cool. And, uh, man, I tell you what, i got a pair of your socks. And, I'm, you know, it's weird to say socks are really comfortable walking, but I'm telling you, that's a very comfortable sock, and I loved it. Yeah, we did. We did a lot of work with that too, and and you know I think we have one of the best uh, hunting socks out there, just as socks go. And again, they have hex in them too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as I mentioned, I was over in Meeker, and we were talking, and um, one of the guys was hunting in a ground blind. And after I told him that, he came back and he goes, "Man, he goes, I got to thinking that'd be really cool if you could make that out of a ground blind." And I go, well, "I never thought about that." And I said. I'll ask Mike if that's ever come up. <laughs> uh, it actually comes up a lot. Does honestly. it? Oh, it does. And and yes, there's there's a we we could certainly do a ground blind, and yes, it would work very well. I mean, you got your windows kind of things too, right? Yeah, one yeah. Achilles heel, and that's yeah. the wind. So yeah. basically, if you're not wearing hex clothing and you're in a in a blind that has, was made out of hex material. Your big problem is it would work very well, except for where it really needs to, and that's when when the animal's in front of you. So, <laughs> um, you know, so that's one of those things. We may do a hex blind at some time. You know, there's possibly some ways to do a shoot through mesh window. Um, that might be something that we explore in the future. But um, still, you know, doing what we're trying to do, the best place to block that field is right from the source. So if you're actually just wearing a, a clothing piece, it's going to do the best job of blocking it. This field doesn't leave your body at all, really. And, uh, you know, that's still the most effective place. So, um, yeah, would it work? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and look at all your videos. And, by the way, great job on your videos, you know, and, and it's um, – I don't want to bring up, too, because we brought this up one time. I think, I can't remember if we were on air or we were just talking, but these are all fair chase hunts. I mean, you're not sitting in somebody's backyard with a fence around it and animals are used to seeing people. These are all fair chase hunts people see on your videos, correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, a lot of them are actually done on public land, to be honest with you. You know, out out west, we are blessed with a lot of public land, and and we use that a lot. Um, But, yeah, you know, we don't do any canned hunts, any, you know, tame animals, any Mm -hmm. of that stuff. I mean, we're we're out there. We're hunting right with everybody else. Um, You know, uh, a lot of our mule deer hunts, uh, you know, we're on private ground, but they're actually bordering public, and those deer are going back and forth off of public during general season. So, um, so no, I mean it's it's all real deal. I mean we don't we don't do any any kind of fake anything. It's, mm-hmm. it's when what you see on our on our shows and on our videos exactly how it happens. Sure, and you know in watching those, and my main point of bringing that up was, I mean, man, I've seen you know with turkey. I mean, it's crazy how good this works with really everything. I mean, turkey, elk, deer, predator, but it works great on birds, huh? Yeah, well, yeah. birds see the, the these fields visually, so that's why you know there's such a you know, such a big deal with, you know, turkeys and waterfowl, uh, those things, I mean, you're going to see a difference pretty much every time you wear it. Um, you know, also, we were talking about other hex lines. You know, we have our hex wildlife line, and and the, uh, uh, you know, the, the bird watchers and people are just, you know, not necessarily hunters, but just trying to get close to, uh, to animals, birds, whatever. I mean, it's a big advantage for them as well. So, right. um, so, yeah, with birds, it's a it's truly a game changer. And like I said, we've done it with every species. The funny thing about turkeys is, 
you know, a lot of the comments online is, oh, you can't do that with these birds down in, you know, wherever they're at, <laughs> you know. Right. And we've taken every single species. Uh, I haven't I haven't yet went down and, and, and shot an oscillated yet, but every uh, one of the main species we've actually taken, just like you see it right out in the open, you can get the full draw if you're shooting a bow or raise your shotgun, you're not going to get busted. So it's pretty cool. Sure. Now, you know, God wants to take his wife or his kids and all that, and you want everybody dressed in this, you know, to be honest with you. All I need is an XL, so I've never really looked at all the different sizes this is available in. So what sizes kind of do you guys uh, mainly stock? Yeah, so in, in our basic system, uh, we do double extra small all the way up to 5XL. So we pretty much oh, wow. cover everybody with that. And that's a really easy-to-fit system. It's, you know, that's just a basic long sleeve T-shirt type shirt. The, the pants are kind of like a sweatpant, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you can wear them over your other clothing or under. A lot of people wear it under, and it works just fine that way. So, uh, so yeah, we can fit just about anybody right, right now with uh, with hex gear if they if they look around on the website. Right. Once again, if you're just joining us, Mike Slinkert is with us. He is the president of Hex, and I'd like for you to go to Hex. It's H-E-C-S-L-L-C dot com, and I'll go ahead and throw the promo code out right now. We've created, and it is simply Scott K L Z. So if you'll put in S-C-O-T-T-K-L-Z, uh, they've been kind enough to offer us a 10% discount on your order. So I hope you'll go there and check it out. And, again, great website. Watch the videos. Um, check out all the lineup. And uh, as Mike mentioned, hey, this is a good-selling product. So if they're out of stock right now, throw your order in there, and uh, that will be coming in fairly shortly. And, you know, when you look at, Mike, at all the different things that we do and spend money just to get out there in the field, I mean, you guys have kept this at a very, very affordable price, too. Well, we try to, you know. I mean, we are a consumer direct uh, line for the most part. So, you know, we don't have to engineer margin in for, you know, for retailers and things like mm-hmm. that. So it does allow us to, to, you know, keep this very, it's a very technical product, but it, it does allow us to keep it at a pretty affordable price. And, and uh, I mean, for me personally, uh, you know, I still get a kick every day out of hearing from people and hearing their you know, their hex stories and, and, and everything like that. And, and you know what, I, I just, it, that's kind of what, uh, what keeps me going every day. And so, you know, being able to, to allow it at a price that just pretty much anybody can afford, it's a big deal to us. Absolutely. So once again, if you'll go to that website, H-E-C-S-L-L-C.com, put in your promo code Scott, K-L-Z, uh, you'll get 10% off of your complete order and, uh, Mike, this is a great deal, and, man, uh, you know, I'm really enjoying mine and looking forward to getting a few more uh, other products from you to try those out as well. But, um, boy, we all just looking for that extra one thing that can give us that advantage, and to me, this is a no-brainer to have. Well, thanks, Scott. I appreciate <laughs> it. And, uh, like I said, I, I hope everybody can, you know, give, give uh, the technology a try. Um, I think you'll get a big kick out of it. And uh, I, I know for a fact it's going to get you closer. So, uh, Scott, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, Mike, we appreciate it, and we'll look forward to our next visit. Okay, thanks. All right, thank you. That's Mike Slinkard, president of HEX. Again, folks, check it out. And you know what? Uh, Mike has said this many times uh, that he's been with us, uh, that it's still hunting, okay? It does not make you invisible. You still have to hunt. You still got to be still. You still got to watch the wind, all those different things. But, hey, this is a product that can help you get closer. HexLLC.com, promo Scott, KLZ, and that'll save you 10%. You're listening to Sports from Colorado. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Scott Watley once again to talk about one of my favorite stores, the Outdoorsman's Attic. 
If you're looking for great deals on your outdoor gear, head on over to the Outdoorsman's Attic. From waterfowl gear, decoys, ice fishing, to big game hunting, they've got you covered. If you've got some gear you just don't use anymore, take it over to the attic and they will sell it for you. They've also got guns and ammo. If your firearm needs a little work, see Scott the Gunsmith and let him know you heard about him here on Sportsman of Colorado. Hunting, fishing, and camping gear at tremendous savings, all at the Outdoorsman's Attic, located at 2650 West Hamden. Stop paying retail and get to the Outdoorsman's Attic. Kevin Flesh of Flesh and Beck Law will handle your personal injury case so you can focus on healing. There's a lot of complexity with insurance companies, and you shouldn't need to worry about those details. KLZ's personal injury attorney, Kevin Flesh, won't even begin walking you through the liability until you've seen a good doctor. Not only does he want you to receive quality medical treatment, but Kevin Flesh also knows you will benefit financially from treating your injuries right away. He's seen people delay their medical treatment because they're worried about the cost, but your insurance company needs proof that you received treatment. Otherwise, they may try to question the validity of your injuries. Once you make that first free phone call to Flesh and Beck Law at 303-806-8886, go ahead and get all of the medical care you need. After you start to feel better, only then will Kevin Flesh help you through the legal process. Call now for a free consultation, 303-806-8886. Flesh and Beck Law, they get results. Hi, this is Scott Watley for my friends at Lone Tree Veterinary Medical Center. And not just my friends, but truly, the staff at Lone Tree feels like part of our family. Since 2002, they have provided the very best care for our pets. What we love about Lone Tree Vet is the services they provide covers all of our needs. From preventative care, dentistry, pain management, cardiology, dermatology, and eye care, as well as emergency and critical care. They also offer veterinary surgery and orthopedic care. And when you need to get away, they have a fantastic boarding lodge and a cat boarding lodge that is amazing. If your pet gets to go along, they can even assist you with your travel health certificates. And when your dog needs a little extra instruction, check out the K9 Academy. They helped us so much when we got a new puppy last year. And then, of course, there is a spectacular grooming salon that you and your pet will love. All of this and more at Lone Tree Veterinary Medical Center. Oh, and check out the blogs to help you become a better parent at LoneTreeVet.com. At Lone Tree Veterinary Medical Center, they believe that all pets deserve to have a good life. Call 303-708-8050. That's 303-708-8050. It's just one stop and all the care you need. Rush to Reason with John Rush. Weekdays from 3 to 7 on KLZ 560. Welcome back to Sportsman of Colorado. I want to say good luck to all those out in the field for the third rifle season. Hope everyone has a great hunt. Looks like we have some weather moving in, and uh, but hope everyone has a great hunt. This next segment is a podcast, actually, from Colorado Parks and Wildlife. As you know, 2020 has seen the two largest wildfires in Colorado history, and over 600,000 acres have burned across the Centennial State. Along with many of the obvious concerns, that come with the fires of such magnitude, additional concerns have been expressed towards the effects on wildlife. 
In this episode of Colorado Outdoors, they dive into some pros and cons of wildfires as it relates to wildlife, aquatic life, and the health of our forest. Providing us with the content will be Senior Wildlife Biologist CPW's Northeast Region, Shannon Shaler, and Northeast Region Senior Aquatic Biologist Jeff Spawn, and Casey Cooley, who is CPW's Forest Habitat Coordinator. And I want to thank Mark Johnson, who is the host of this podcast. Called Mark this morning asking if we could play this, and he said sure. And uh, you can always catch these now on Colorado Outdoors Online, and uh, highly recommend you do that. And always check out the CPW website as well, uh, cpw.state.co.us. So we're going to join that podcast now from Colorado Online Outdoors. Well, sadly, wildfires have been a huge story here in the state of Colorado for much of the fire season, as literally hundreds of thousands of acres have been affected. Now, the good news is, a few days before this recording, Mother Nature helped out with some cold weather and a bit of snow falling over much of the affected areas. Frequently, when we think about wildfires, we think of the effects on human life, private property. Recently, a number of mountain towns have been affected, and certainly the safety of the men and women who are out there fighting the blaze. However, overlooked on occasion is the effects on wildlife. Joining us now on Colorado Outdoors, powered by Great Outdoors Colorado, to talk about that very topic is Shannon Schaller, Senior Wildlife Biologist for CPW's Northeast Region. Shannon, thanks for being with us. Uh, as we're all paying attention to the general news uh, about these blazes across the state, my, my guess would be that you're really focused on the wildlife and the impact it's having. Oh, thank you for having me. Yes, we're getting lots of questions from our public about what this will do to wildlife both in the short term and long term, you know, and then we also have hunting seasons going on right now, so a lot a lot going on with the dynamic situation of how it impacts hunters. But yes, a lot of people concerned with people first, but then second, what about everything that lives in the forest as far, such as wildlife? Well, tell us what happens. I, I'd imagine that wildlife has a pretty good survival instinct. What, what do you see under circumstances like this for wildlife across the state when these fires hit? Well, thankfully, they do have good survival instincts. You know, fires are natural, and they've evolved with fire. And so wildlife, for the most part, can hear and smell fire coming and can get out of the way. Um, depending on the speed at which fires go, which, as we know, the East Troublesome Fire was a very rapid fire um, there are, unfortunately, cases where some wildlife just cannot get out of the way. And then if you think about populations of wildlife, you know, not everything is as mobile as the next animal. And so maybe the, the less mobile or the older the sick might not get out of there. And then um, a fortunate thing, though, is that this time of year when these fires are burning, we do have wildlife uh, that we don't have a lot of babies on the ground, which is a good yeah. thing. And so... Um, from a, just being lucky for this time of year, we have animals that can get out of the way. But for the most part, they are fully adapted to survival to fittest, and they get out of Dodge, and they don't care about the guy next to them. It's, it's get out of here. But, again, we don't really know what the, the effects are on the ground until we can get in there and look, but hoping that those survival instincts have paid off for everything on the landscape. Yeah, so when you get to the back end of a fire and you're allowed to go in and, and take a look, what are you looking for? What do you normally find when you walk into these fire zones? Yeah, just in talking to some of our staff, you know, we have seen some mortality from bigger wildlife already that just couldn't get out of the fire for whatever reason. Um, in the short term, it's the immediate damage, right? We're looking for either injured animals that may need to be euthanized, um, the, it, you know, the mortality that occurred from the fires, and then 
for the long term, we're looking at how hot did that fire burn, you know, mm-hmm. what's the rate at which that vegetation will recover, because in the long term, fires can be very beneficial for wildlife. So we're looking at instead of the immediate impact. Um, we have radio collars out on the landscape for animals in these areas, both deer and elk. And so we are a- looking at some things from just the computer to see how fires are impacting wildlife. And if you take the Cameron Peak fire, for instance, we have some radio collared elk there. And we have elk that have been using the the landscape within that fire perimeter. And so it's just kind of interesting to see what their behavior is and what their long-term impacts are going to be. And obviously the impacts of fire in in many respects are obviously tragic, but but also a little bit if I read between the lines what you're saying, it, it can be educational for what you folks are doing at CPW in terms of the study of wildlife, correct? Yeah, there, there's a great opportunity to learn about um, forest practices, right? What what could we have done maybe better to prevent these fires, or what did we do right? And then we have opportunity to look at um, animal behavior pre-fire, because I told you we have radio collars on in the area of East Troublesome and Cameron Peak. So we'll, we'll be able to compare animal usage on the landscape pre-fire and then post-fire. And then we also have a great opportunity to look at the benefits from a vegetative standpoint. Um, what can we do from a restoration standpoint or to see how these fires did actually rejuvenate a landscape that maybe the understory was kind of choked out and this will be a benefit in the long run. So a lot to be learned, which is from that standpoint. Yeah, what you're talking about there is always fascinating to me because we as humans, when we watch a wildfire, we think of the devastation, the loss, and what you just touched on, I think is kind of fascinating from a wildlife perspective, and that is, you know, fires are kind of a natural part of, of the Earth's existence, and wildlife have dealt with them uh, for centuries, and the benefits that come out of this in terms of habitat and those kind of things. Talk a bit more to that, that idea. Yeah, that. It is. It's a great opportunity for the forest to do what it should do naturally. Um, we have the Hayman fire that we can kind of use as a, as a case study to, to learn about how animals rebound. And what happens after a fire is you get this early successional stage in a forest. So all of a sudden the, the ground under the trees get exposed sunlight and much-needed nutrients. You know, as, as a forest grows older and the canopy gets tighter, that grass and forbs and shrubs in the forest may not get the needed nutrients. So basically, it gives it a shot of energy as far as sunlight and nutrients to really expand both forage quality and quantity. And wildlife are like magnets to post-fire areas in a lot of cases because all of a sudden what wasn't growing is now growing in abundance. So it's just a a great example of how a natural process benefits wildlife. And certain species even more are attracted to those early successional stages, like moose in particular really like those early successional forests that have been impacted by fires or logging and that type of thing. You mentioned the Cameron Peak Fire and, of course, the, the Cal Wood Fire and as big as they become. But I guess I've got a question about something like the East Troublesome Fire, which blew up so incredibly fast. Uh, you, you talked about animals having the ability to survive and get out of there, but I would imagine that that is the type of fire that could be devastating because of how quickly it exploded and then uh, enveloped uh, so much acreage. Right. I mean, I I know that there are some wildlife species that probably just got trapped and, and couldn't get out of there. I 
like I said, I haven't heard any real detailed accounts from a wildlife perspective what the landscape is. I think we're still just trying to come to grasp with what happened for people. Um, but nothing catastrophic, no indications yet at losing any large, you know, block, you know, large populations of animals. But if you compare the East Troublesome to the Cameron Peak, I do think from a mortality standpoint or just instant impact to wildlife, the Troublesome one has, has the potential to be more um, deadly to wildlife because of the rate at which it moved, whereas the Cameron Peak fire has been going on for four months and wildlife can just continually move out of that area and, and get to refuge easier. Shannon, something you touched on a moment ago, you made reference to the hunting season and, and how uh, that is being affected right now. Is there any plans or are there some thoughts with CPW about altering the hunting season because the way it is being affected by so many acres being covered in fire? Yes, we've been working on that extensively since some of these bigger fires went like the Cameron Peak. We've been offering refunds to hunters outside of our normal refund policy and we're trying to keep up with hunters ability to actually have access to lands which you know it may not be that the animals are gone it just may be that they don't have access to get to it so we're trying to take everything into account which is you know our need to manage wildlife populations through harvest and the strong desire by the public to get out and hunt which Right now, everyone could use a little, you know, outside mental health, but then balancing that with their ability to have a safe and successful hunt. And there are just some some seasons and access points that aren't going to happen, so we've offered refunds. I mean, the best way to really understand the, the breadth of what we're offering to hunters to help them out is through our website, and that's constantly being updated with new locations that uh, we are offering refunds. We're trying to help hunters out and stay on top of the most current information is our way we're trying to balance everything out. Well, we'll certainly check out the website. And uh, undoubtedly, when fires hit the state of Colorado, it affects many different avenues of the state, and this is certainly one of them. Shannon, we really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Well, now let's turn our attention to what all the fire activity means for our waterways throughout the state of Colorado. Joining us here for a few minutes is Jeff Spohn, Senior Aquatic Biologist for CPW's Northeast Region. Jeff, welcome to Colorado Outdoors Podcast. I know there's no question that all this fire activity is having some, you know, obviously wide-ranging effects on the state, and undoubtedly the waterways are part of that equation, correct? Yeah, I mean, not specifically currently that we're aware of, but, you know, typically what happens after a fire, um, you know, burns through and gets suppressed, it's usually the monsoons or heavy snowpacks that happen um, after the event where um, the aquatic environment sees the impacts from a fire. So what are the first things that ultimately, when we get down the road here, that you guys are going to be looking at? I mean, you know, sediment coming into drainages, that kind of thing, or where, where do you start ultimately when you kind of take a peek at it? You know, basically what it's going to come down to is how um, intense the burn was in a specific drainage and then where the, the moisture hit. Because basically, you know, you get these, these valleys, these watersheds that have burned, and then you get, um, you know, a rain event or a snow event, and then that moisture filters down to a drainage, which, you know, is a river system first order, second order, third order system, and it just brings all of that um, ash and debris into the system, which, you know, impacts aquatic wildlife. 
And then when it comes to water quality and being a fly fisherman, I'm always thinking about that. Where does that come into the equation, and, and, and how much generally have you found that that can be affected by, by a fire event like this? It, it can be pretty significant. Um, my, my experience is from the 2002 Hayman fire. I was the local aquatic biologist during that time, and you know we didn't see any impacts in 2002, but once we started seeing the monsoon systems in 2003, that's where things really, um, you know, started impacting the aquatic wildlife. By what you're talking about, are you talking about a, a loss of life, or what, what exactly? We saw a significant impact to, um, you know, the brown trout and rainbow trout that uh, persisted before the Hayman, you know, upstream of Cheeseman Reservoir, downstream at, you know, Deckers, you know, all the way basically to Strontia Springs Reservoir. So are, are there benefits, though, on the flip side of that? Are there some benefits? Can there be... Uh, maybe new habitat created from debris, those kind of things that also come out of a fire? From, from a sport fishery perspective, um, I would say it's, it's a negative impact um, pretty much all around. However, um, what we're looking at from the Cameron Peak fire is there's areas that have burned that may allow us to, um, you know, instead of reclaiming the fisheries for native species, you know, the greenback cutthroat trout, we're looking at potential areas where that have burned that may create a fish kill from, you know, brown trout, brook trout, rainbow trout that we can potentially reintroduce the native um, and federally uh, threatened greenback cutthroat trout. That would be one significant benefit. So once you get to the point where you're, and maybe you can go back to your history with the Hayman fire, once you realize what the problem is, how it's being effective, what's the process of recovery and, and revitalization efforts? It's going to be a little bit different with the Cameron Peak Fire. Uh, the one benefit of the Hayman was we had Cheeseman Reservoir and Strontia Springs Reservoir, which are on-channel reservoirs that kind of acted as a bathtub to collect the sediment and debris from the Hayman and then had refugees downstream. Okay. Um, on the Pooter, we don't have that. Um, so it's, you know, the, the vastness of the Cameron Peak fire impacts to the Pooter, you know, we, don't, we, we can't draw an analogy. Um, I will tell you, however, that the simple fact of what we did with the Hayman is worked with water providers Denver Water and Aurora to once the um, debris and sediment that was impacting water quality moved through the system. We just got a lot of other sediment that impacted spawning habitat, things like that. Once we started rebuilding the fishery, we were able to work with those water providers to provide us flows to flush the system out to you know move the fine particles out of the system so fish could have spine habitat pool habitat things like that i just i don't see that happening with with the pooter okay so what do we know at, at this point uh, have you have you been able to take any baseline population samples of the pooter at this point or or is it too early to tell yep the crews were out last week um taking fish um you know, fishery samples on densities, population, species composition, just so we have another data point. Um, the nice thing about the pooter, to my knowledge, we've got, you know, a vast data set of what that fishery looks like, you know,
Jeff, one of the sad realities, uh, or I guess, uh, you know, just realities we have to accept here in the state of Colorado is we deal with wildfires. And I'm wondering from a, a waterway standpoint, and maybe this is a massive question to answer, but are there things that, that we can do ahead of time that are preventative to help the waterways when, when fire events do happen? Yeah. It, you know, and in, in this is not in CPW's jurisdiction, per se, because most of that fire is burned um, on the forest. But, you know, trying to get vegetation established. Um, one thing that we learned from the Hayman um, is even once vegetation was established, though, there was so much sediment in the tributaries um, that, you know, every time it rained or had a big snow event, we kept seeing sediment entering the plat. Um, so just getting basically, you know, vegetation established that, you know, can slow down the velocity of the rain event um, and keep the soil intact. Um, you know, is is probably the most significant way of, you know, slowing this down. But right. the vastness of that fire, um, that's a huge task to undertake. Well, certainly there's uh, a lot of work for uh, folks like you in the future here as you're looking down the road at the effects of all the fires we've uh, sustained here in the state of Colorado. Hey, Jeff, we really appreciate the time and your insights. Thank you. Well, it's time to talk about the effects of these fires and what it means moving forward here in the state. Joining us now is Casey Cooley, Colorado Parks and Wildlife Forest Habitat Coordinator. Casey, welcome to Colorado Outdoors. I have to think that what we're witnessing this wildfire season, we're looking at really an historic set of circumstances in your world right now, aren't we? Yeah, Mark, that's true. Uh, this year has been kind of a, an extraordinary year when it, when it relates to wildfires. I mean, it's not... It's not unheard of to have some fires in Colorado, but this year the the size of them and and the uh, the intensity of them has definitely kind of opened people's eyes. Uh, we've we've had a quite a year so far, so and it's still kind of going. So yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was good to get a little cold weather and some precip here over the last few days to help out at least a little bit. You know, I think when the general public starts thinking about fires, they understand they're going to be set by natural causes, sometimes human causes. But but to the, the ecological drivers, in terms of why these seem to be so intense, can, can you speak to that a little bit? I mean, are we, are we talking about drought? Are we talking about insects? What exactly has kind of uh, driven this to be as bad as it's been this year? Yeah, it's 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 a little bit or a combination of all of those things. You know, uh, when we talk about ecological drivers in the forest, we're talking about those things that are naturally occurring that just exacerbate things a little bit. Um, and so fire, obviously, historically has been on this landscape for a long time. Um, you know, historically, though, it was, it was depending on which forest type you're talking about, uh, it was more lower intensity, more frequent fires uh, than what are occurring now. So, you know, over the past 150 years or so, through the through our land use decision making and stuff like that, um, we've we've kind of set the stage for having these larger scale fires that are that are uh, of higher severity. Um, and so, you know, when we talk about uh, other ecological drivers like insect and disease and drought and climate change and those kinds of things, those are all things that are contributing uh, to uh, what we're seeing on the landscape now. But you know, largely some of uh, what we can what we can explain this to is is 150 years of 
uh, fire suppression and um, allowing uh, the natural forest to uh, become more dense with more trees and become more homogenized uh, as far as forest structure goes, uh, which really leads to those fires, um, you know, getting up into canopies and, and, and making long runs and, and those kinds of things because we have this continuity of fuel. So, you know, it, it's important to talk about those drivers because those are the things that we, we try to, you know, we try to uh, educate people about and get them to understand that the forest that they're looking at now is a forest that um, is not uh, acting naturally because we are we are um, manipulating those drivers with fire suppression and and those kinds of things. So then that would then kind of lead us to active forest management and, and how then we can kind of help navigate that or manage that in some form, correct? And, and what are the processes that, that uh, we can utilize in order to make things a little bit safer and, and manage uh, the forest a little bit better from a fire perspective? Sure. So active forest management is something that we definitely uh, like to bring up and talk about because it's something that we can do. Um, you know, obviously what we're talking about when we talk about active forest management is we're talking about uh, logging and mechanical treatments that thin the forest and, and thin it to, you know, more of something to restore the forest structure there. Um, we also talk about things like prescribed fire and um, being able to emulate uh, fire on the landscape that would have been occurring naturally if, if, if we weren't here. And so, you know, we we in the forestry world, we, we, we like to uh, promote active forest management as something that helps us try to break up the continuity of that canopy of the forest and that kind of thing with the idea that that will help us in a fire situation, in a wildfire situation where we just don't have this continuity of fuel that once the wind gets up and starts driving that fire, we have no real control uh, to that fire. And so what we try to promote is, is doing active forest management. Uh, and what we're ultimately trying to do is we're trying to restore that forest structure in such a way that natural fire could occur on the landscape, but it wouldn't be as devastating and, and impactful as it is like we're seeing now today. So Casey, what can we do from a process standpoint to maybe help alleviate this fires? And, and if there are people out there that are interested in, in coming alongside and helping out, are there, are there opportunities for folks to maybe uh, get on board and, and help out in that process? Sure. Yeah, Mark, I think one of the most important things that we can do is just uh, be aware of of how important active forest management is for our public lands and our forests here in Colorado, and uh, and and understand and support uh, the federal agencies and the state agencies and the the county open spaces and stuff like that when when they're doing or trying to do active forest management. You know, for instance, there's a lot of uh, nonprofit groups out there and a lot of collaborative groups out there that are trying to look at things more at a landscape scale and trying to address things more like from a watershed. And, and what I mean by that is it's, it's not only the natural resource professionals or the wildlife biologists and those kinds of things, but it's actually the general public can get involved in this as well when you're interacting with these landscape scale collaboratives like the there's one on the front range called the front range round table and that's 
that's just an open group that talks about forest restoration and, and forest management and, and how to try to address and be proactive about uh, these wildfire situations and that kind of thing. There's there's a whole host of those types of groups out there around the state that, you know, if, if people are interested in getting involved and in, 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 uh, having their voices heard about, you know, public lands and the public trust, um, I would recommend getting in, involved with those types of groups that uh, talk about this stuff on a day-to-day basis. And, and they're there with the, the people actually doing the work, like the Forest Service, the United States Forest Service, and the Colorado State Forest Service, and, and parks and wildlife and, and agencies like that. Well, it's always such a dramatic time for those of us here in the state of Colorado. We see these kind of uh, you know monster fires come through. When it's all said and done, there's always an assessment that goes on. You know, we talked earlier with Shannon Schaller. She was talking about from a wildlife perspective going in and assessing. What about post-fire rehabilitation and, and how you assess things once you're able to get in there when all the fires are put out? What what does that process entail? Yeah. So um, depending on the fire and severity and the size of it. Uh, there's sometimes where we, we don't do anything. If it burns um, in a, a lower intensity or lower severity, we typically let the, uh, the environment and the land kind of take care of itself. The seed sources are there to grow new grasses and shrubs, and if it hasn't consumed every single thing out there on the landscape, there's still pockets of green trees to seed in areas and, and that kind of thing. Um, and in situations where there are large, uh, highly severe burns, uh, they have uh, the federal government has the ability to go in there and kind of do a triage of what areas uh, are most susceptible to um, to like erosion and sedimentation and that kind of thing. And so that's what's referred to as a bear team and. Those teams are set up. They have individual uh, species experts on them and, and, and that kind of thing. And they go around the fire and, and they look for those areas that are highly, uh, highly burned or high severity burn or really steep slopes or right next to a drainage and those kinds of things. And they just prioritize those areas to, to try to stabilize the soil, try to uh, break up that hydrophobic soil and... Um, and get things growing again to stabilize stuff, to reduce sedimentation and, and reduce stuff getting into our streams and in our waterways and our water supplies. Well, it certainly is going to be an ongoing story and, and something we won't have completely wrapped up, obviously, for quite some time. But, Casey, we certainly appreciate you, your insights and all your thoughts on uh, what we're witnessing here in the state. Sure, no problem. Glad to help. Great to get some insights as to the effects this historic wildfire season has had and will continue to have on our state from some of our experts at Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Our thanks to Shannon Schaller, Jeff Spohn, and Casey Cooley for joining us. Remember, for anything and everything pertaining to Colorado Parks and Wildlife, go to our website at cpw.state.co.us. Once again, we want to thank Colorado Parks and Wildlife and Colorado Outdoors Online. Once again, a lot of great podcasts. We want to thank all of those. Uh, that were involved in that. And once again, that was CPW's Northeast Region, Shannon Shaler, Northeast Region Senior Aquatic Biologist, Jeff Spawn, and Casey Cooley, who is CPW's Forest Habitat Coordinator, and the host, Mark Johnson. This is Scott Watley for my friends at Phoenix Weaponry. Phoenix Weaponry is proud to announce their new 10,000 square foot facility is now open in Berthard, Colorado, located at 504 North 2nd Street. With this expansion, Phoenix Weaponry offers a new retail area 
and expanded gunsmithing in Duracoat and Cerakote areas. Family-owned and operated Phoenix Weaponry offers the finest in competition, hunting, and long-range precision firearms. Also, suppressors from 22 long rifle to 50 caliber for rifles, pistols, and shotguns. Phoenix Weaponry also offers gunsmithing services and restoration repairs from antique to modern firearms. Building your firearm dreams into reality. That's Phoenix Weaponry. Call them now, 720-340-2496, or visit them at phoenixweaponry.com. Hi, Jack Corgan for Len Lyle Chevrolet. Len Lyle Chevrolet is open and safe. It's truck month, and they have the best deals of the year on all trucks and SUVs, like up to 10000 off on half-ton Silverados. Or come check out the all-new Tahoes and Suburbans for 2021. Len Lyle has been there for 35 years, and low overhead really does mean low prices. Check them out on the web, lenlylechevy.com. Go east and pay the least. Chevy. Find new roads. Is your vision stopping you from enjoying your outdoor activities? Hi, this is Scott Watley for Stack Optical. Get by Stack Optical today and check out the Stack Sports Pack. One great frame where you can easily interchange the lenses to the tent you need for golf, bike riding, shooting, fishing, and yes, even driving. Stack Optical, family owned and operated. They're fully staffed and ready to help you with all of your optical needs from eye exams, glasses, contacts, and yes, even repairs. And rest assured, Stack Optical has taken every precaution to ensure your safety and that you have a clean environment. 2233 South Monaco Parkway. 303-321-1578. Call them now. 303-321-1578. StackOptical.com. And remember, at Stack Optical, you'll see the difference. Rush to Reason with John Rush. Weekdays from 3 to 7 on KLZ 560. Welcome back to Sportsman Colorado. Thank you so much for being with us today. Once again, good luck to all those out and for the third rifle season. Wish I was there. We're going to go to the phones now. Close out the show today with our good friends from the outdoorsman's attic, Billy Paddock. Billy, how are you, sir? Yep, yep, I'm here. All right, good deal. How are you, sir? (laughs) No, I'm doing good, doing good. No, busy day today? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, we, we got some guys already saying that they got animals down for third season. Wow. Yep. Which is shocking. I know. I got a friend of mine sent me a picture of a beautiful buck his wife shot this morning. And uh, so, yeah. I know. It sure is. I'm glad to see that. Absolutely. So, Billy, let's talk about some of the deals you got going on right now. And, you know, I was just listening to uh, talking to a friend of mine this morning, I should say, and he's talking about fishing. And he said, even with the weather changing like this, fishing is going to be really, really good. So, just take a minute and tell us some of the great deals you got going on. Yeah, the fishing stuff's picking up, and then we got uh, pheasant season's just right around the corner, so guys are starting to come in looking for all their uh, their clothing and stuff. And, and uh, with the waterfowl season, hopefully that's going to pick up here pretty quick too. Um, we got we just got in a whole load of uh, goose decoys and uh, duck decoys as well. Okay. Um, so that that's going to be good. Um, you know, ammo still is in kind of a short supply. <laughs> There's no. Uh, there's no end in that, but we do have some. Okay. Um, and, and, man, Billy, that's know. probably just, if we can just take a second right there, That it yeah. is probably going to be a while before we see ammo yeah. flowing again like we're used to, isn't it? Um, yeah, I don't I don't see it coming back the way it was for quite some time now, you know. Um, 
yeah, our distributors are saying, yeah, good luck. We're all in the same boat. You know, they can't even get it. And so, um, but we do have some, you know, but uh, it is like, who knew that 30 out six was going to be in short supply? Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> wow. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, you've got a great array of Sitka clothing there, and you've got a good discount on some Sitka clothing as well. So, we do. boy, if you got in there, and yeah. most of that's like in medium or large, I think, isn't it? <laughs> yep, it's it's all large, so it doesn't fit me, so you guys all lucked out. Well, it doesn't fit me either. Absolutely. And, you know, a good array, of, uh, you know, you had some decent, really nice shotguns in there and some rifles. I yep. mean, you've got a, a pretty good array there of some uh, pre-owned firearms and some that are, I'm brand new. Yeah, I mean, a guy just dropped off a 10-gauge um, Browning BPS that's brand new in the box. Um, it's an older gun, but you know, anybody that needs one of those uh, those cannons to reach those long-range range geese and everything, uh, we got it. <laughs> wow! All right. You know. And so, yeah. take take just a minute and kind of tell us how the consignment works. People want to bring in some things. You guys take a look at it. You decide on a price with a customer, and then uh, kind of talk about how your program works real quick. Yeah, I mean, first off, you know, we're kind of, we let people have their input. You know, we don't just blindly price people's items, you know. So if, if you bring in an item and say, you know, hey, listen, this is what I really want to get out of it, we're going to steer you in the direction of what it's going to sell for, you know, and we're going to say yes or no. And a lot of times people come in and they're shocked at what they can get for one of their used items, you know. They're like, oh, I thought I was just going to get a garage sale, you know, kind of price. And, and we actually clue them in to, no, you can get much more for it, mm-hmm. here, you know. Um, the consignment process is really easy. Everything's um, tracked by a, by the computer, and you, you actually have an account that you open up here. Um, and once it sells, you get your money, and it's, it's paid in cash. Or if you want to walk around through the store and pick out some other good deals and everything, maybe fill some spots that you're, you're missing in your closet or, or in the gun safe, you know, we'll help you out with that. Sure. No, that's a great Pretty way. Easy. I mean, that's what I, yeah. you know, just build an account there and, hey, get a few bucks yeah. and come in there and buy some things that you don't need. I mean, that you do need. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, there's those too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, once again, it yeah. is the Outdoorsman's Attic. It's 2650 West Hamden, and your hours through the week are... So we're closed now Sundays and Mondays. And so then, oh. so Tuesday through Friday, we're open from 9.30 until 5.30. And then on Saturdays, we're open from 9 to 4. 9 to 4. All right. Yeah. And uh, you got Scott Scott down there that hangs out in the basement as a gunsmith. Uh, so that's been a, a great addition for you as well. Oh, I tell you what, he's, he's a well-welcomed addition. Um, the man is a wealth of knowledge, and he's quick with turnaround and Every single person that walks out of there and everything, they have a smile on their face because they just absolutely love them. So yeah. we couldn't be more excited to have Scott here. Well, good deal. Get by the Outdoorsman's Attic, 2650 West Hamden. I promise you it's a store you need to visit a couple of times a week just with all the cool stuff they have coming in. Fishing, hunting, camping, everything to do with the outdoors there, you can get at the Outdoorsman's Attic. So, Billy, I know you guys are busy, but thank you very much, and uh, we'll get by and see you this week. You're welcome. Have a good weekend. All right. Thank you, sir. You as well. That's the Outdoorsman's Attic. I want to thank all of our guests today, Mike Slinkard from Hex, and I want to thank Colorado Parks and Wildlife, and again, Mark Johnson for sharing that podcast with us on the fires. Hope you have a great rest of your day. Leave it right here on KLZ 560.
views and opinions expressed on KLZ 560 are those of the speaker, commentators, hosts, their guests, and callers. They are not necessarily the views and opinions of Crawford Broadcasting or KLZ management, employees, associates, or advertisers. KLZ 560 is a Crawford Broadcasting God and Country station.